Uh, I'm going to get you guys to really quickly introduce yourselves, uh, just going, starting with Pete and just moving down as handy. Yep, uh, so my name is Peter Coe. I'm from Sydney. I, uh, five and a half years ago, planted a church in the south, southern areas of Sydney out of a Chinese church. Um, and we started uh, both Chinese language and English language ministries. And uh, I'm about to lead a plant early next year out of our new plant to plant another congregation further out west in Sydney uh, where the cult- cultural is even more diverse. Uh, so we are sort of a, a Chinese church trying to do multicultural ministry. Beautiful. Uh, Ray Galea, um, we, uh, Sandy and I planted a church 23 years ago, uh, originally called the Maltese Bible Ministry, and then somehow along the way became the Multicultural Bible Ministry with about 50 or 60 different cultures, and uh, in the western suburbs of Sydney, which is now becoming more middle class because the house prices have gone through the roof. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, involved with uh, church plant repotting at Auburn, um, which is a multicultural uh, heart of Sydney, probably, um, and uh, been there for the last two years and uh, just handed it over to Tim Cox, who's now leading it. Sandy, married to Ray. Um, I'm the children's minister um, at uh, St Albans MBM and uh, I do that part-time and the other part-time of my week I travel and train children's um, leaders um, in Australia and beyond and I write programs and publish them on KidsWise. Okay, I'm going to kick the, uh, the discussion off. I think because as I heard Bruce speak, I think one of the, the tensions, I mean, I come from an Asian church, and I think one of the tensions I've struggled with is this, this uh, you know, 1 Corinthians 9 says we're called to be all things to all people, yet Ephesians 2 actually says that the dividing walls of hostility between cultures need to be broken down in a church community. And so, you know, it'd be interesting to hear from Pete, and then we'll move down to, uh, to Ray. I mean, how, how do you work through that dilemma and how does, has that shaped the way you do church uh, and mission as a church community? Yeah, I, I think it's, it's definitely a live issue in my mind, uh, coming from a, uh, an ethnic church, a Chinese church. Um, I think sometimes people fail to understand that multicultural does not, or does not often mean... Mo- uh, uh, mon- sorry, monocultural does not equate to monoethnic or because you can have one ethnicity with lots of different cultures. That's one of the interesting things about uh, Chinese churches, Asian churches, probably African churches as well. Um, so there's, there's enough multicultural there. But having said that, um, one of the things that Bruce said is absolutely correct is you've got to keep feeling the pressure towards Revelation 9. And I think depending on where you start, you, you know, uh, you've got to work out how you respond to that pressure and how is that going to look in practical ways. We came out of a Chinese church. We were planted from a Chinese church. That gave us a lot of advantages and resources to reach people that probably others couldn't reach and can't reach. But we are now thinking, how do we, in light of Revelation 9, push towards that different picture, uh, or, uh, you know, I guess a more robust, heavenly picture of church? Um, so how we're going to work that out currently is we're just going to take one cultural step out of our zone. So when we're planting our new church in Bankstown, we've realized that there's two main groups of people really needing to be reached in Bankstown. There's the Vietnamese and the Lebanese. Um, now, we're not, we're, we're not very good with the Lebanese, and we, until this year, had no Vietnamese, really. But we're Chinese, and we're a half-cultural step away from the Vietnamese, and they needed to be reached. 
So we're going to start with that and see how God might bring other nations. And I'm, I'm hoping an accidental sort of MBM story, you know, we'll try to reach one group and then other groups will turn up. And that often happens as well. But that's, that's kind of how we're trying to uh, sort of um, shepherd our resources and steward our resources. My hope is that we become one of those hub churches where we might have, I mean, similar to St. Paul's, small and large congregations where some are more homogeneous, others are more heterogeneous. But I want to keep the church together. I don't, I don't want to, I'm at the moment not thinking we're just going to plant lots of independent churches because of the pressure and the, the, I think the desire to keep a Revelation 9 as Revelation 7 picture. Do you know what I mean? And that may mean that uh, under our church banner, we've got different types of expressions. Some are more homogeneous, some are more heterogeneous. But together, we, we can create a, a, good, a, a better model of, of what is a heavenly picture. That's how we're trying to do it. Rain, Sandy, how have you guys dealt with that dilemma? Well, Peter alluded to the fact that it might have been accidental. But I believe it was a well-thought-out strategy 23 years ago that uh, after three days of fasting, we came up with this idea. Thank you very much, Peter. No, um, I piggybacked on my dear friend Archie Poulos's, uh model of the Greek Bible Fellowship. That's how it started. Uh, we were hooked onto the homogeneous principle. Philip Jensen had been teaching us all the uh, effectiveness of it and the... The fact that like attracts like, etc. So, um, and really it's fed by, I mean, you can have two motivations that drive the homogeneous principle. You can have just downright racism, the kind of thing that Gandhi had when he went to church uh, and was told perhaps you prefer to fellowship with your own people and then went back to Hinduism figuring Christianity had its own class system. Or, as with Donald McGavin, I think, and that whole movement, it was actually driven by a real passion and want to see people saved. And, um, and uh, at its best, that's exactly what it's trying to do. And reflecting the 1 Corinthians 9 and the Philippians 1, that desperate search to bring the gospel in meaningful ways to as many people as possible. So it, it's a missionary principle for me that has to be held on to non-negotiably. Um, but that's why I love what Bruce said, the way he framed it, that heavenly pressure and so that whenever you engage in ministry to whatever people groups you're dealing with, mindful that you have to establish groups around them that are like them. For, this is the phrase I've often used. For as long as there's an identifiable ethnic group or subcultural group, there's a need for an identifiable ethnic evangelistic outreach ministry. Now, that may take the form of a Bible study, homogeneous Bible study group, a particular service that's particularly for first when language is an issue. But that whole movement is, is never an end in itself. It is driven in a direction towards finding, and I love the phrase, expressions of that heavenly assembly where we're gathered around Christ from different nations. And the racist heart that lurks within every one of us, and there's, there's, there's always, it's always there, just assume it, uh, and that ability to always go for preferences rather than love that you know denies oneself and wants to relate beyond my own people group and comfort zone, means we are a healthier church if we keep moving in that direction. And it's good for the soul, and let's face it, the food's much better anyway. (laughs) And what what would that look like at MBM? So, I mean, for us, you're right. Peter was right, you know. know, A person makes his plans and God determines his steps. So, you know, we target a Maltese. But I, I knew from the beginning, like with GBF, Greek Bible Fellowship, we were going to attract a broader 
but similar ethnic groups. So we, what I call the WOG kind of category, you know, Greeks, Italians, etc. the Mediterranean, Middle Eastern. So that became our homogeneous group, second generation Mediterranean, Middle Eastern. And that's where we thumped a lot of our energy. And then the shift in God's sovereignty, I think because we had a very inclusivist approach and we approached people very much aware of their ethnicity. So I'm forever, I never introduce anyone, usually without making reference to their ethnic background. So whether it's my Fijian brother who's going to get ordained, I see her, uh, and that's how I refer to him. Or I refer to my uh, Sudanese friend who uh, taught me, um, I'm forever inclusive and honouring the cultural group that represents that. Or a fifth-generation Aussie from Burke, you know. Um, that, that part of who we are tends not to get acknowledged in a dominant Anglo congregation, but we're kind of intentional about celebrating, wanting people to feel comfortable in their own skin and then sitting tight with Jesus and sitting loose with their culture so they can critique it and then be flexible so they become all things to all men. So that's a kind of scenario that I think allows then us to be attractive to a broader sweep of people. But, you know, I don't think we do it that well too, to be honest, you know. Really, after, see, I, I, I feel like I can tell you the 50 problems that we've got right now, but I'll hand it over to Bruce. <laughs> to do what? Yeah, what does it look like in Car- what, what did it look like in Carlingford? Uh, what it looked like in Carlingford, uh, it, it uh, took lots of uh, different forms. Um, so there's the larger multi-cultural uh, uh, meetings and there were uh, a, a variety of uh, somewhat smaller, though the Chinese congregation was quite large, um, uh, language congregations and uh, even the young folk, because they found it easier to invite their um, Chinese English-speaking, born-in-Australia friends, um, they, uh, they were happy to meet together too. It was better for evangelism, but needing to feel the pressure to mix with everybody else. Uh, in Auburn, um, we started um, further back. We only had uh, 12 older folk there and, and some uh, Sri Lankans. Uh, having a non-Anglo face in a very multicultural area. So the evangelist was Zambian, uh, and then Tim joined a year later. Uh, but having, having Goodson do evangelism up and down the streets and inviting people, people from all sorts of backgrounds, he naturally interacted better with Africans, black Africans. But uh, being able to draw them uh, readily, I think that they were... Uh, and so the, the congregation at Auburn now is very multicultural, though we have um, uh, groups that meet on occasion around um, Sri Lankan meals to which everyone's invited, so we acknowledge the uh, different ethnicities. The Kenyans, uh, had a, we had a meal, so th- those sorts of things. We recognise the cultures, uh, and uh, but we meet on Sunday in a very multicultural group. Bruce, you, know, you spoke about um, helping the congregation feel the pressure to move towards that ideal. And one of the, some of the things uh, you've done at Carlingford to actually move towards that, to, to, to help majority culture feel the pressure of uh, being much more expansive in, in working and reaching cross-culturally? Um, badly. Um, preaching, um, encouraging, uh, but uh, I, I don't think I can think of anything in particular other than preaching uh, and encouraging people one-to-one 
to see uh, the heavenly reality and that um, that this is only a step, you know, this monocultural uh, group is only a step towards that heavenly reality. So I, I haven't got any slick answers for that, I don't think. You know, part of it's teaching on culture. Uh, it becomes important and um, the relationship between Christ and culture. So that phrase is like sitting tight with Jesus and loose with your culture, training people to stand back from their culture, everyone, and everyone is cultural. Uh, you know, they're, they're products of their upbringing and yet wanting the Lordship of Christ to reign over that. Um, at a human level, just celebrating. I, want people to, I do want people to feel comfortable in their skin. You're like, that's important to me as well. It's part of our doctrine of creation. And so part of that is when you interview people, you know, you, that's part of their story. So the stories get aired, you know. So they're not sort of monochrome stories. They're stories from this particular background and that one. And, and in the end, what you're doing is you're celebrating diversity and unity. That's the ultimate hidden agenda, but it's not hidden. It's explicit, but becomes just part of the DNA that you want to keep valuing. And, you know, start where you're at, really. There can't be everyone's Anglo-Saxon in your church. Even if you try to, it's impossible. Someone's married to some ethnic mongrel. So, you know, search them out and, and you know, just start to um, uh, work with what you've got. can get away with saying that. Okay. Uh, Sandy, I did have a question for you because, uh, you know, we've noticed this more and more, uh, certainly as we've, we've, I've visited ethnic churches, I noticed that uh, children become a lot more culturally diverse uh, and with that, you know, a whole host of uh, issues are raised. And has that posed a challenge at MBM? Um, I, I love the fact that you, you look at a, a group, like I had somebody from Gladesville come and have a look at our children's ministry last year, and she was just looking at a group of girls, eight of them, they're all praying with their Filipino leader, um, and uh, every child was from a different culture. And uh, it's... It, it does give you a beautiful taste of heaven. It's a visual reminder of where we're all heading. I think um, for kids' ministry, um, it, it is about celebrating. Um, uh, so some of the things that we've tried to do and think through intentionally, and you can't always do that because we have, you know, 60 cultures represented. I'm looking around for leaders, and uh, I try to um, uh, put... Uh, the leaders in teams so that there's a diversity of ethnicity within the teams. It doesn't quite always work that way. But uh, kids seeing a ethnically diverse leadership team is a very helpful thing when they're coming in. Um, we follow the adult teaching program. So when Ray last year did a series on Christ and culture, the kids, the school-age kids, we taught them the same thing. And so within our teaching programs where... Um, uh, celebrating the ethnic diversity. We do things like um, regularly in our teaching program we have um, uh, days where we're thinking about a particular um, country. So last year it was Thailand and all the Thai people in our church did all these activities with the kids and dressed up, taught them Thai dancing, um, had a greet in Thai, Thai food and uh, it's fantastic because the whole place looked like we just stepped into Thailand. Um, and our leaders didn't do anything. It was just the people from the Thai culture within our church who put on this amazing day for the kids. So it is thinking um, intentionally and celebrating um, and uh, using the, the cultures within your church to highlight um, uh, both the diversity and the oneness that we have in Christ. 
And that does put pressure on the majority culture of the church as well, doesn't it? Because it just makes people think that we're much broader than the existing culture. Yes, yes yeah. it does. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Especially if the kids are seeing diversity within the leadership yeah. as well. Can I say one thing? We have had, I have had to train my leaders in terms of how to, not just bullying, but racism within kids and so at times you know I've had leaders whose kids have made racist remarks towards them and they've been thrown by that so actually helping my leaders to manage the behavior of the kids um, because they're not expecting it (laughs) and so yeah just helping them to deal with racism between the kids as well as racist remarks made towards them as well. Ray you're going to say something you Picked up the mic. You gonna add? I was I was hungry. Now, <laughs> I I I um, I find if I'm not on this issue, uh, we our default position will slip back into middle class Anglo-Saxon. It's just because you do church reasonably well, you're going to have a, a quota of transfer growth. You're not looking for it, but it comes, and all of a sudden you just regress back to. And you, you know there are times you think, man, I'm looking around, the diversity is getting lost. And so you've got to keep things like quota systems up the front. I mean, we're quite you know PC in some ways. We just make sure there's quota systems up the front. You know, we, we have to. And then I get my eye off the ball for a while, and then and then I notice uh, we slip back into a default position. And just it's something you've got to be on the front foot all the time. Um, I just wanted to make that point. Yep. Yeah. The leader sets and, and, the tone I, of the culture of the congregation yeah. and models that. Yeah. 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 Uh, I've got a question for Pete that, um, you know, when people look at Pete Coe and they look at the, the ministry that he leads, uh, you, know, the, you know, when I look at your church, like my church, I just see a bunch of sea of Asian faces. And so, you know, we've been accused of being uh, quite um, monocultural, you know. I mean, how would you actually respond to that, Pete? Yeah, I think uh, it's maybe a little bit of a simplistic understanding of culture. It was very helpful, actually. I recently listened to Ed Stetzer uh, just on the Geneva Bush website, I think it was from Multiply a couple of years ago, and he, he, he talked about, don't make the mistake that culture equals ethnicity. Um, within Chinese culture, it's, it's, it's classically uh, misunderstood as very diverse, because the Chinese diaspora has gone everywhere, and uh, every, if, if you're talking about a Singaporean Chinese and a mainland Chinese, they're, they're, they're two different cultures. They might, and they don't get along, do they? They don't get along. Yeah. I mean, even within China, the Shanghainese and everyone else don't get along. So... Um, so there's that, like we feel a lot of cultural tension and, and part of what it means to even be a Chinese church is how do you get people to love each other? Um, but I, I understand from another perspective, yes, it's, it's, it's culturally, I guess, more homogeneous than, um, uh, than say Ray, Ray and Sandy's church. Um, and so we're working out, again, this is where we've started from, we're working out what does it look like for us to move towards that, that, that picture Having said that, though, and I'll talk about, I'll just give my workshop a little bit of a plug this afternoon because it's going to be about ethnic churches. And I'm convinced that to reach multicultural Australia, um, if you're not from an ethnic church, you've got to work out how to minister to, minister with, and minister from ethnic churches. Because like it or not, they're, they're there, and there's hundreds of them. And, then, and there's resources there to reach multicultural Australia that we haven't even thought about. And so, um, you know, so while, while I take the, you know, the pressure and the, um, sometimes the kind of criticism, um, uh, I do want to say uh, what's more constructive is those of us, those of you who aren't from that background, work out how can we, how can we help 
so that together we can reach multicultural Australia because they'll be able to do things, especially their second generation, be able to do things you won't even dream about able to, being able to do. And if you're from an ethnic church, uh, hopefully you're also feeling my pressure, especially if you're not the first generation and language is, you know, then how do we also move our churches towards that multicultural picture? And I think that those are kind of things that I, I want to kind of explore. And, yeah. and I want to pick up on that really by maybe this next question. Uh, most churches have got a majority culture. Uh, most of us here com- come from churches that you know, are quite homogenous, uh, whether it's Anglo, whether it's Asian. Uh, how do you actually help a church with majority culture make that shift beyond majority culture to begin to engage uh, people of minority culture so that you know, it's, it's more embracing? So, so like if someone came to MBM, what's the majority culture there and how do you keep it fluid? Well, I think the majority culture is still probably Anglo-Saxon, I think, um, 60%. We're really talking about 40% that reflects the diversity. That's what I meant. And, and it, it'll go out if we don't watch, if we don't sort of keep our eye on it. I mean, every, just think, I mean, I, I set up a work working party last year with a whole bunch of people from different cultures to keep thinking through this issue from who welcomes the signs we have. So we've got different language welcome signs that cover five continents um, uh, to who you have up the front, to a welcoming disposition. Is this your question, by the way? Yeah. Um, so you've got a. This is the whole. Tra- you're you're saying how do you turn a homogeneous church into a multi-ethnic church? Yeah. So um, you know it, it's got to be reflected in rate. Uh, you know it doesn't. Get, it's it's working with who you've got. Um, it's trying to look for people who can be leaders. So you've got to spend more time being intentional. And it's a bit like you know if you don't have a you know complementarian view, uh, you, you don't have to work with guys, you know, and then you can just neg- neglect them. But, but our model structure means we've got to put energy into guys. They're much harder to work with than women. We, women will put up their hand and serve. But the, the, the framework demands I've got to put energy into guys because I want them to lead. My multi-ethnic vision church, for church means I've got to put energy into different ethnic groups and potential leaders and look for others who can resource them. So you've got to take a proactive position on this Otherwise, the default position will be Anglo-Saxon, which is lovely, but Australia doesn't, is more than that. And can I say, it's not, the, the ethnic issue is the easier one. The class issue is the hard one. You know, I, it's easy to get two different ethnic groups loving each other if they're of the same demographic, you know. But you get um, within the same ethnic group, working class or, you know, welfare, public housing and upper class, that's to me a much greater challenge and... That one I haven't even got an answer for. And, and that's certainly true even within culture, because within that's the Chinese church, yeah, exactly you know, they're right. all middle class, exactly and that's right. what they tend yeah. to attract. Uh, Bruce, you know, how do you shift majority culture? Because a lot of us here come from churches where there is very strong majority culture. Uh, what we did at Carlingford was uh, employ um, people. Uh, it's a variation on, on what Ray was saying about who's up front, but employ people from... Uh, other backgrounds than the Anglos, so that folk who come in not only see leadership uh, in terms of leadership of uh, church, but preaching, uh, uh, reflecting their background. So we did that with the youngsters, and then we did it with... uh, So Gary Koo is now the leader of Carlingford, and uh, that's perfect timing because there's now an extra 10,000 homes in Carlingford. Most of those homes are going to people from East Asia. Uh, and so um, it, it's sort of like a, a, um, the sort of leadership that uh, uh, is needed. Hmm. Uh, I'm going to open up to the floor. 
if you've got a question, just raise your hands. Can I just reaffirm yep, yep, that? Sure. You know, so you may feel like you know I'm I'm, I'm a fifth generation Aussie man. This is just that that really that step is a really meaningful step. Don't compromise the quality of the gospel and the character of the person, but finding someone from a, an ethnic group that reflects the area you want to reach that is the key. I just wanted to underline that. Can I add one more thing? Where do you find guys like Gary Koo? He was my youth leader at my Chinese church. Do you see what I mean? Like, like if we can find ethnic churches who have the people and we can mentor them, we can train them, we can get them out into doing multicultural ministry. Yeah. And, and, and half, half the problem is that most of the ethnic churches are actually not within the major denominations. They all are independent. So you steal them. <laughs> that's, that's one of the ways to do it. Go, go steal our people. No, it's good. Actually, you, you need to. You need to sometimes do that. Yeah. Questions? Can I, can I ask a question about that, that recruiting question? Because I'm all about recruiting church planners. If you want to get assessed, or you think about planning a church, come and see me during the course of the conference. Um, especially when our cultures and some of our cultures you know, really don't push kids towards full-time paid Christian ministry. You know, it's very you know, hard for I know, some Asian, um, Asian kids to actually say to their parents, hey, I want to go and be a minister. Um, yeah, Chinese pastors are really well-treated um, in their ethnic churches. They how, are in the denomination. Yeah. <laughs> how, yeah. How do you... I get, and it's a question for Sandy as well. How do you, how do you create a gospel-centred children's ministry that you know, changes the way families think about the whole of life? Um, you know, yeah. So all of you, I'd love to hear that, that, that question answered. Um, changing culture within families. Uh, I think um, I, um, I think for me as a children's minister, understanding, um, helping parents to see um, the priority of the gospel within the family and so helping parents to actually have a, um, a, a clear understanding of their role as ministering to their kids and uh, getting excited about being in gospel ministry. It's been interesting um, just observing the families in our church, those families who get involved in mission together as an entire family. So you have children, teenagers and adults doing mission together actually capture the vision of the impact of the family on multiple generations. And so um, our July Holiday Club, I've seen huge fruits, not just in terms of kids coming to faith in Christ, but parents actually becoming uh, excited about being in gospel ministry, like being on the front foot when it comes to gospel ministry and saying having a bigger picture of just not the gospel being passed on to their children but seeing the gospel going out um, into the community. Um, and so I think in terms of helping parents to actually have a huge view just beyond their own children, um, in terms of raising kids to have a view in terms of going into ministry, maybe somebody else can <laughs> do that. But, yeah, just in terms of helping parents to actually see the gospel beyond their front door um, is a helpful thing. I mean, preaching specifically on that issue and, you know, celebrating the fact that your children may go to bongo bongo land is a great honour. You know, like so you're making heroes out of those who've gone into full-time ministry at the level of... Um, 
addressing the fact, you know, what you're, what's the thing you will rejoice about, your daughter becoming a doctor or, your daughter, you, you know, you know, or going into ministry? I think being, you know, if you're working class, it's less of an issue, I think. Mm. I think the two big areas where it's a problem is if you're, particularly, I think, I think the Chinese battle with this, would that be right? And, you know, highly successful, everyone's got a BMW in the car park, you're either a doctor, a dentist, or, you know, like that's, that is, an, we, we sometimes get the, the refuge from that <laughs> of people who never quite cut it and feel you're like, you know, they're okay because they're just doing a trade or, you know, they work for Myers, you know, and, and feel like they're not feeling like failures. So I think that has its own. And, and, but there is the migrant issue as well, that is people or refugee, you come from another country, say, and you come for the purpose of wanting your kids to do really well. And then they end up and go and do MTS, so they're not working, and then they go off and do Bible college. And then, worst of all, they go back to the old country. I mean, I met an African like this who they left lead, and then she ended up doing MTS and was going to go back to Africa. Oh, mate, that's about as countercultural as you can get. But that's the Jesus we're proclaiming. He is countercultural and, you know, subversive on all the worldly values that we have. So that needs to be just a diet of preaching that kind of makes that kind of the framework in which we think and then on top of that the specific addressing of it and then and then honoring those who do do it um but personally i wouldn't know how you do it in a chinese culture where it's just i imagine from an outside it seems like well you guys are probably how do you do it uh yeah with great difficulty um but we have advantages i think the chinese churches have been around for long enough that there are people like eugene and myself um, who are in ministry. Um, so I would recommend, if you're trying to recruit people from the outside of that network, to use people from within the network because it's going to go down a lot better for, well, maybe or maybe not, for Eugene or, or me to kind of give them that word and talk to maybe talk to their parents. I had, I had uh, uh, one, a girl wanting to do MTS with us next year, so she brought her parents along to chat with me last week. <laughs> and the conversation went well, and she's going to do MTS with us part-time next year. Do you know what I mean? So that's, mm. that you, use, you use your bridging culture, which is actually, again, why it's important not to burn your bridges with the ethnic churches. If the ethnic churches always feel like, hey, you're just here to steal our people, um, and you don't really want to work with us, you're not actually then what happens is they isolate themselves and you're never going to get those bridging people to tap into some of those resources. If they feel like, hey, you know what? You guys, we've benefited from you and we, you want to work with us, then you've, you've got all these bridges that, that you can use as uh, avenues into recruitment. So I, I want to say it's easier for the Chinese church. You've got more people like me. If you're looking for the Vietnamese churches and uh, I don't know about the Korean churches, you know, maybe you just, we have to find some of those bridges. Yeah. Just one thing to add, I think, is that um, uh, changing the heart, the worldview of the parents, uh, perhaps of the dad in particular, so not just preaching, but um, spending time with uh, heads of households so that you can influence the next generation. It's the, the kids are being taught in youth group uh, that there's a world out there that needs evangelising, but the dad's heart is still the mum's heart's still caught up in the culture uh, that they have, that they bring to the gospel. Uh, you spending time, the, the ministry team pouring their energies into the heads of households, the families, I think is probably the key in my experience. Um, as a result, when the kids start saying nutty things like, I think I'm going to go to college and go and work in Bulamakanka, uh, then the parents not only think, We'll pray for you, and we'll actually support you while you're at college, and so on. So, yeah. I mean, that, that was certainly true of my experience. Yeah. You know, my parents opposed me going to ministry, but.
but it was the investment of uh, the word in their lives. You know, they, they sat and they studied the Bible. Uh, the church put effort into the small group they were in. And as the word changed them, it changed their attitude towards what I was going to do. Yeah. Actually, where it's hard is you've got non-Christian parents. Yeah. And uh, it's just very hard. I mean, you know, I went to church every... I saw my mum cry every day for two years because I left Catholicism, you know. And then I married an Australian. And, well, that, was, that really added to it. <laughs> and then I became an Anglican minister. Well, you know, well, the, it was gone then. But really, well, that, that was... And I, I'm, actually, when I think about it, she probably had, you know, there were midlife issues for her. You know, she was at that age. So I'm sure her, you know, hormonally was affecting her emotions. And then at this, we often forget that, but that, that's the case. And then on top of that is the shame culture. It's just embarrassing, you know, like, uh, and that's what you're dealing with, especially with migrants. Man, we came to this country to make a go of it. You're wasting your life. Question? Um, yeah, something I've seen among my fellow Anglos is um, in an effort not to be racist, there's this kind of obsession with being politically correct. Um, Whereas that actually, trying to be politically correct, ironically kind of breeds more racism. And the people that are less racist kind of laugh about each other's cultures and don't take themselves too seriously. So my question is, with people who um, are kind of really scared of treading on toes and they're trying to be politically correct, but you can see they're actually, it's actually just racism that is driving that and they're not wanting to acknowledge or celebrate the diversity of different cultures, how do you help someone um, make that shift from trying to suppress the differences between cultures to actually celebrating them? You know, I thought it might be good that you speak. <laughs> I thought you had the answer ready, so... Did you? Yeah, I did. Um... The question is, how, how does an Anglo... I'm just thinking, you're an Anglo-Saxon, where'd you go from, man? I was <laughs> you know, there's a difference. You know, some of my best friends at church are Anglo-Saxon, you know, like, um, and they, they just... They, they, they celebrate without being sarcastic. If you get rid of sarcasm, I reckon that's 80% of it, because it is a, you know, white, middle-class, university-trained style of humour that doesn't cut it. I've got no time for it. I flush it out of my church wherever I can. Um, so you get that out most of the, t- you know, most of it. Uh, I mean, sarcasm towards people that is, towards idols, of course. We're very sarcastic, and we do what God does in Isaiah forty to sixty-six. So, but I'm wondering now. This is very dangerous. Um, you know, you need to know that you're part of this country. You're part of, the, you know, you've got your personality, your culture. So it's kind of feeling comfortable in your skin as well, and not apologising for that. But you know, some some people who aren't who aren't um, who are not some people who are Anglo-Saxon want to use the word "wog." You know, that's probably not helpful. You know, leave it for the wogs to use the word "wogs," and you know, and and so you kind of respect that there are ways. You know, I, I don't tell I'll let an Aborigine tell an Aborigine joke. I won't do that. That's not appropriate. So you kind of that kind of there's lines that you live within that you celebrate, but you don't cross over as well. I know it's hard to negotiate, and some. Uh, and so it just kind of takes honest feedback, but but just being part of finding out that the part of the per- don't don't flatten out the differences. People say, "Oh, you're you're Australian, you look like one," and all that. Well, the worst thing that you, anyone ever said to me is, "At least you don't look like one," referring to my Maltese background. 
or when they say, you know, you're, you're, you're just like everyone. I say, you don't know me if, they, if you think that. I live in two worlds. I live in the overlap of two cultures. And you'll never know me unless you know that world. So it's really got to know people's stories and respect and celebrate where they come from is how you do it. And that's about listening and loving, isn't it? I mean, let's face it. A love covers a multitude of sin. You can be really lousy at this whole thing. Just love people properly. And you'll get away with 90% of it. But, but put some wisdom. I don't have much more to add, really. Uh, the issue of racism is, is uh, it's deep and uh, not easily eradicated and slips to the surface uh, unintentionally sometimes and people just... Uh, and, and so it's, it's very difficult to get rid of. Uh, uh, and so I suppose, um, again, it, it rests with leadership. Uh, if leadership... Uh, um, jumps on racism overtly, often, uh, then a culture develops um, where it'll only ever change if you become self-critical, uh, if you start to uh, address yourself rather than people come from the outside. So uh, not only preaching, but uh, addressed publicly, uh, led properly, and people will eventually eradicating sin is tough, but eradicating this sort of sin uh, uh, just takes a while, but the culture uh, eventually will be overlaid that will address it and you'll start becoming self-critical of your own. I shouldn't have said it quite like that and I'll pray. Mm. One more question. Yeah, yeah, I've got a question about decision-making processes and wondering how do you... How do you, um, whether it's at a church or a denomination level, but how do you move things along um, so that so that newcomers to the congregation who aren't from the majority culture um, really have a, a genuine voice and they're not just kind of guests within a system that's contextualised to 17th century Scotland? Well, keep, keep raising up a generation of leaders. That's how you do it. So you look always looking to grow ministries around everyone, really, and include them. You want to. You want. You're looking for them to be leaders. So you might have to spend more time with them, being a growth group leader. Um, you're looking for someone on staff and to reflect the diversity in the community that you're trying to reach. Um, you're, I've noticed that some cultures very won't put up their hand to serve, not because. And and you can almost think, man, these guys don't want to you know, contribute. But really, they're, they're very much aware that they're not in the dominant culture of Australia and, they, and they're respectful and that whole thing of initiative is kind of seen as proud and rude. So you've got to go in and, and really nurture their involvement and celebrate according to their gifts. And, and, and so, um, you know, it's not a one-size-fits-all. Hey, it fits the topic. Uh, you know, you've got to approach cultures and people in cultures slightly differently. And you've got to be aware, you know, where Aussies are aggressively casual and, um, and that can kind of be overwhelming for some cultures, especially Asian, timid cultures. Like Filipinos are very respectful and, um, and so you've got to work. And then sometimes use that authority in a good way, you know, saying... You know, sister, I really think you'd be good at this, and I'd love you, and give her permission to fail as well, and yeah, so so just uh, empowering as much as you can, yeah, on God's terms.